the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome to Vatican Insider on this third weekend of June. After the news segment, stay with me for part two of my interview with Jesuit Father Michael Maher, a native from Milwaukee and an expert on the Belgium-based Society of Bollandists, an association of scholars and historians who, since the early 17th century, has studied the cult of the saints in Christianity. The society is named after the Flemish Jesuit Jean Bollandus. Father Maher talks about that work, about how to separate fact from legend in a saint's life, the need for scholars to know ancient languages for this work, and what we can learn about societies from reading the lives of the saints. Now, some of the news highlights of the week. I start, of course, with Friday, June 16th, and the good news, the return of Pope Francis to the Vatican after 10 days in Jamili Hospital for abdominal surgery on June 7th. Shortly before 9 a.m. Friday, he was released from Jamelli. Following the Pope's departure from the hospital, he maintained his tradition of making a detour to Rome's Marian Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore to pause in prayer before the icon of the Blessed Mother, Salus Populi Romani. Before returning to the Vatican just after 10 a.m., Pope Francis stopped for a brief private visit to the nuns of the Instituto Maria Santissima Bambina, gathered for their general chapter, and then, outside the Perugino entrance to Vatican City, he greeted law enforcement and thanked them for their service. Health updates were issued daily by the Holy See Press Office. Most updates noted the Pope slept well, that blood pressure, blood tests, and x-rays were all within normal. He has been undergoing, however, breathing therapy. His nourishment at the start was via intravenous, then for several days was liquid, then it became semi-liquid. But there has not yet been news of a return to solid food. He has limited mobility and must not put any strain on the abdominal muscles so as not to harm the work done to repair a hernia issue. In recent days, he spent some time in an armchair, reading and working, and also praying in the small chapel of the hospital suite. On Thursday, June 15th, Pope Francis received the entire operating team made up of medical staff, nurses, social and health workers and auxiliaries, as well as hospital chaplains. He visited the pediatric oncology ward to meet the little patients there who had expressed their affection to the Pope in recent days through numerous letters, drawings, and messages of speedy recovery. To each, he gave a rosary and a book. The Vatican Press Office Friday noted that audiences on the papal schedule for the next days, as well as the Sunday Angelus, are confirmed. But the weekly general audience of June 21st is canceled to safeguard the Pope's post-op care and precautions. Well, there were some other news stories this week. Monday, June 12th, in a telegram sent by Cardinal Secretary of State Pietro Parolin, Pope Francis joined in mourning former three-time Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, who died Monday at age 86 after battling illness. Tuesday, June 13th. 
The Vatican released Pope Francis's message for the annual World Day of the Poor, stressing that a great river of poverty is traversing our cities, and every Christian is called to become personally involved in the struggle against it. Francis wrote that whenever we encounter a poor person, we cannot look away, for that would prevent us from encountering the face of the Lord Jesus. The World Day will be celebrated this year on Sunday, November 19th. The Pope also said, We are living in times that are not particularly sensitive to the needs of the poor. The pressure to adopt an affluent lifestyle increases, while the voices of those dwelling in poverty tend to go unheard. Wednesday, June 14th. Pope Francis addressed a message to the United Nations Security Council meeting in New York, and he reiterated his call for an end to violence, conflicts, and building up weapons, saying they reflect the, quote, famine of fraternity marking today's world. He said the time has come to say an emphatic no to war, to state that wars are not just, only peace is just. And peace is possible if it is truly desired. He warned against resentful and aggressive nationalisms, and he encouraged the application of the UN Charter with transparency and sincerity. The papal message was read by Archbishop Paul Gallagher, the Vatican's Secretary for Relations with States and International Organizations. Thursday, June 15th, was also a big day for two stunning announcements. The first was a statement from the Holy See. On February 28, 2023, Archbishop Georg Ganschwein concluded his office as Prefect of the Papal Household. The Holy Father has ordered that Archbishop Ganschwein return as of July 1st, for the time being, to his diocese of origin. This terse statement was not from the press office. Ganschwein was, for many years, of course, the private secretary to Pope Benedict XVI. Interestingly enough, the Archbishop's name still appears in the 2023 Anuario Pontificio, the Pontifical Yearbook, as Prefect. His diocese of origin is Freiburg, Germany. Also Thursday, more big news. A communique from Father Johann Verschuren, Jesuit, Delegate of the Interprovincial Roman Houses and Works of the Society of Jesus, issued a statement saying, in part, We inform with a grieving heart that on June 9, 2023, Father General of the Order of the Jesuits dismissed from the Society of Jesus Father Marco Ivan Rupnik. This was done in accordance with canon law due to his stubborn refusal to observe the vow of obedience. Also Thursday, with a call to honor and never abandon grandparents, Pope Francis issued a message for the third World Day for Grandparents and the Elderly on the 23rd of July. The 86-year-old Pope instituted this day in 2021, saying it will be held the fourth Sunday in July, closest to the Feast of Jesus' Grandparents, Saints Joachim and Anne. Let us honor them, neither depriving ourselves of their company, nor depriving them of ours. May we never allow the elderly to be cast aside. Well, those are the news highlights, but stay here for my conversation with Father Michael Maher about the Bollandist Society. This is Father Lawrence Liu. Catholic Radio is a precious gift because it places a Catholic voice in your homes, in your cars, wherever you might be. 
Saint Dominic would pray as he walked and as he traveled throughout the length and breadth of Europe. Now, as we travel and wherever we go, Catholic Radio can help us to keep our minds focused on the things of God. The world needs EWTN Catholic Radio, now more than ever. EWTN is everywhere. EWTN radio programming is provided free of charge to over 500 domestic and international AM and FM radio stations. It's a great teaching tool for Catholics and non-Catholics alike. For a complete list of EWTN AM and FM stations across America, visit EWTNradio.net. At the bottom of the page, click Affiliates. EWTN, the global Catholic network. People always ask me, Father, how should we pray? Well, there's several ways we can do it, but the most important is through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to pray from our heart. We have to pray honestly and sincerely. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to work through us so that we're not just simply saying words, but we're saying words that can actually change us. Prayer, if it changes us, then we're doing it right. Welcome back to Vatican Insider. Here's Joan Lewis. Welcome back to part two of my conversation with Jesuit Father Michael Maher, a scholar and an expert on the Bollandists and the lives of saints. As we heard last week, the Bollandist Society is an association of scholars and historians who since the early 17th century have studied the cult of the saints in Christianity. They're named after the Flemish Jesuit Jean Bollandus. This week, Father and I talk about research, how to distinguish between fact and legend, and the challenges that must be overcome in research, such as knowing ancient languages, or even transcribing bad penmanship. Studying the lives of saints, there's um, a bit of legend. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of truth, but there's a bit of legend. But sometimes truth, or not sometimes, always truth is more powerful than legend. But how do researchers, how do you know how to separate what in the past we might have a legend says that Saint so-and-so did thus and such? So basically the fundamental event of doing a research is how do we look at these forms and we see similarities in forms And then when we look at that form, and then when we see something different, we can say, ah, maybe that's what we would call the the truth. So, So we would ask ourselves, is the story of the prodigal son true? Is it true or is it false? Even when I ask the students that, they'll say, well, it's a story with the moral. I said, but is it true or false? And and you can see they're kind of fidgeting because even they understand that there is the story and the truth behind the story. For example, in the United States, we're great storytellers, and the story of the Western, you know, Gunsmoke. I'm getting old, you know, we can't use that, Gunsmoke anymore. I remember Gunsmoke. Well, you know, there were the black hats, there was the white hats, and, and, and so there were these sort of predisposed methods of telling a story yeah. and and then the plot rode on those forms right and so one of the things scholars do is they sort of separate the form from those things that are different from the form so it demands a lot of cultural study to understand what were those cultural forms of storytelling now to go back to the, the actual research itself 
And one of the things that fascinated me <clears throat> was some of the problems that you can you can encounter in research, such as old languages that one has to either you know learn or or there can be penmanship. Oh. That, that, that that would be one of the worst I would imagine. I, I uh, penmanship. I'll tell you a, a story. I took a course here from uh, Father Reginald Foster on what we call. Oh yes, yes, the Latinist, right? From Milwaukee. From Milwaukee. From Milwaukee. As is Cardinal Harvey and myself. So all the Roman greats are from Milwaukee. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, it was a course in what we call paleography, and that's how to read old Latin Languages. handwriting. Mm -hmm. And I did fairly well. And so people said, well, have you had this course before? And I thought, no, no, I taught high school and I had to read sophomore handwriting. Oh, sure. And so, so paleography, and one of the things that is difficult about paleography is that, you know, everything had to be written with a quill in ink, and so there were no pens. That's a 20th century invention. It was an ink pen. And sticking a bird's feather in a pot of ink and trying to write, so they would write in abbreviations. Oh. Let me give you, let me give you a little lesson in abbreviation. Okay. What would you say if you saw a seven with a B-R-E over the top? Okay. A brethren, when, I have no idea. No. <laughs> well, you know from Latin or Italian, Septe, sept, seven, yeah. With the B R E would be September, September. Oh my god! And so gosh. an eight with the B R E would be Octo, oh, October, October oh. and a nine would be Nove, the November. The oh my god! So when you see this, or then it gets tricky. You see an X with the B R E. Of course, X is ten, ten in Latin, and that is Dieci is ten, December. Oh, December, see, because not 12. That, you see, October, November, mm. December are references to an older Latin calendar, which okay. got all mixed up in the Middle Ages. So, Diesibre is the, actually the 10th month, but it got inverted, so Oct October, November, December, 8, 9, and 10 are, are, are a reference to an older Latin calendar. But anyway, so that's a little lesson in paleography. But now, now tell us about the institute itself. I mean, you spend some time mm -hmm. there each year. You're you're obviously in Rome now. Mm -hmm. what, what what was your visit to Rome for? My to my visit to Rome city? is is uh, I do research for my own research, and currently I'm working on a project. Some of your listeners may be familiar with a group called the Marian Sodality Movement, mm -hmm. the Marian Congregations. My larger research project is this. Any group of people has a bright idea, you know, like Mother Angelica, yeah. right? Okay, but that bright idea has to be, has needs a structure. So her bright idea is evangelization, right? Sure. And so what's the structure that she makes, and that is EWTN. So what I look at is Jesuits have ideas about education, about spirituality, and I'm interested in the structures that the Jesuits create to implement their ideas. And particularly I'm interested in how the Jesuits work with lay groups of people. Many people mistakenly think that the first time the Catholic Church ever worked with the laity is after the Second Vatican Council. Exactly. Boy, is that wrong. wrong. That's a whole other interview. I can tell you more f stories about that. So that's what brought me to Rome. But my interest, of course, in, in helping the Bollandists is that their work of storytelling 
helping them understand the truth, especially in an era today when fake news and bad news is so prevalent. Well, Father Michael, tell us something about the library itself. I mean, I've gone online, but um, even what I heard Irini uh, um, talk about, it's like 500,000 <coughs> volumes? Oh, let's put it this way. If you are a scholar of the Middle Ages or any type of librarian, and you're wondering what heaven looks like, it's the Baldus Library. Oh. It's like, you know, you have to understand that every book is a story. And historians, if they're good ones, love to tell stories. And we like to hear stories. So you look and you'd say, when I die, I'll be able to read every one of these stories. And the other thing about that library is, when I look at that, I, I kind of got goosebumps and I said to myself, the tremendous amount of scholarship that our faith encouraged. Yes. That I don't think people realize and you know what's interesting when I take non-Catholics to Rome they're impressed with the beauty of the faith and the scholarship of the faith I mean you got the Catholic Church it was the inspiration for universities oh, for yeah, hospitals well, for clinic for so much if you look at the double movement of the Catholic faith it's apost apostolic work it's actually it's three it's the contemplative life it's care for the sick and education and that really has been how we have that's our face to the world and so the Bollandists tell that story and it's important to go back and recall the importance of this work for the church that the Bollandists tell a story and they continue to tell the story and they really need support to tell that story sure. And uh, I'm, I'm very proud, even in a small way, to be able to tell that story to people. Create that awareness. Where, mm. Create the awareness of the stories of our saints. Because we go back to the idea of a society is known by its values, and a society's saints represent these values. So if we want to know the Catholic Church, we look to its saints because these are the men and women that, re that reflect our values, and that story needs to be told. Oh, exactly. Now, I know that the Jesuits, because you all have been in charge of this, they, this, they were suppressed in, I have forgotten, 1773. We just okay. celebrated the anniversary. Oh, right. And how did that affect the work of the Bollandists? Well, interestingly enough, uh, the countries where the Bollandists were in, they saw the need for this continued scholarship, and uh, we found different headquarters. Uh, the Premons Detentrons housed the Bollandists for a while, and uh, the work continued. And then after the Society of Jesus was restored uh, in 1814, 1812, uh, that it uh, came back then under the jurisdiction of the Society of Jesus. And uh, that was actually uh, one of the great patrons of the Bollandists was the Belgian government. Oh, good. And uh, so now, of course, um, <clears throat> the needs of the Bollandists continue. And Is there a number of saints? That, I mean, <laughs> if so, how would one... Uh, would only the Bollandists know? Because No, only God knows. Yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, uh, someone... I was on an interview... Uh, in Milwaukee and they said to me how do you make a saint and they said uh, so he started explaining and the guy goes whoa Padre this is kind of complex can you just do it in five seconds 
and I said, sure, if you can explain to me how the NFL draft works in less than five seconds. Oh. <laughs> and he said, okay, okay fair right, enough. Right. So um, you know, there are thousands. Uh, what's important to realize is that saints occurred probably before the, our year, the, uh, the year 1200, as what we call in Latin the acclamatio. They were common saints of, the, oh. of, of communities. Avoche. I yes, mean, avoche. it was the voice proclam. We want to we'll remember when John Paul died. Subito <clears throat> sancto. Exactly. And Make him a saint immediately. And so as, you know, <clears throat> after the year 1000, when the northern invasion sort of calmed down, and there was a greater structure to the church that we saw in the high Middle Ages, there was greater codification. You had the Lateran councils. You had the birth of universities. It's not surprising that with this greater codification that occurs within the church, that we see a greater codification of saints. Sure. So, for example, uh, Saint uh, Francis of Assisi was uh, canonized two years after he died. Yeah. So we see this codification as part of a larger codification that comes with the extension of the, the church's authority. Well, and today the thing is that, the, you know, if a person, I think the number is 50 years, um, 50 years after a person, there's people around who aren't witnesses to the life of a person. You might have someone's writings, mm -hmm. but um, so some of the requirements that the congregation, or now dicastery, um, has for, you know, on the path to sainthood have changed. Oh, yes. It's, uh, you know, then there's the stages, the servant of God stage, the, the uh, beatified stage, right. and then this, this full sanctity. And uh, each one of these stages now are quite rigorous as technology and methods of, of uh, documentation have advanced. And so most saints now who are canonized tend to be after the French Revolution, though they are important. Sure. The person that sort of, uh, the joke was he, he made heaven a little bit more crowded was John, John Paul, Paul II. <laughs> and there was some criticism, but what John Paul did was he realized that there was definitely a prejudice towards white Italian males of noble families. Right, yeah, or possibly Spanish. Sp possibly <laughs> Spanish, <laughs> getting into heaven uh, as a saint and John Paul said, really, we all need examples, and these examples have to be examples that make sense to us. Well, he told the congregation, yeah. he said, please look for lay people and, and look for couples. And couples. There are, I know them, there are saintly yes. lay people out there. Because he's, he laughed and he said to them, people think that you have to found a religious order or uh, be a martyr yeah. to become a saint. And he just wanted to say, hey, you know. No, and, and so he really made the church more accessible. Uh, in that, in, in, in who we have as saints. Oh, I forget, you'll have to help me. The, the, the young man who is beatified now. Carlo Acutis? Yeah, who, yes. who did all this web work. <laughs> oh, I know, and the Eucharist and daily mass and the <coughs> so, rosary yeah. and just this. And, and so that's something now that young people can say, hey, I can do this. I can work on web sure. and promote the uh, knowledge of Jesus Christ. We just have to bring sanctity down to our level in, in the sense that it is possible. Okay. You know, we, we don't have to be thrown to a lion no, in, no. in order to wear that halo. But well, you, can, so, you, you can do something that's even more difficult. You can teach catechism to nine-year-olds. 
Oh yeah, <laughs> you, uh, oh, or two. you know. I, I think or twenty nine year olds, and and the idea of sacrifice is that it, it it's where we don't expect it, and it's in the smallest things. I think the uh, the, the Teresa of the little flower and Teresa of uh, Calcutta both remind us that, uh, and the great work of the Bollandists is that sanctity is found in everyday life. Well, you know, we only have about two minutes left, but um, tell me who your favorite saint is and why, and or did you discover something in your research when you went, oh my gosh, I never knew that. <laughs> Who's my favorite saint? Uh, well, of course, um, I, I like St. Ignatius. So I of course, would think I so. I would think so. Yeah. Um, but it's also, there's something about Francis Xavier of just the sheer audacity of saying I have to go out and convert Asia <laughs> you know yeah, there's yeah. just sort of this just going out there but I, I love St. Ignatius for his great clarity and uh, for example St. Ignatius says uh, in the first principle and foundation of the spiritual exercises men and women are created to praise reverence and serve God and by this means to save their soul and that the things on the face of the earth are created insofar as they help us to attain the end for which we are created. And therefore our goal in life is to understand how to use creation. And it and so that opens up that says and that's why we take education as a Jesuit. So for me That kinda helps me understand Pope Francis, um, when he talks so much about creation. The, that, Obviously it, preserving God's creation, but now I understand if, if you want to understand that the whole goal of our life is to make good decisions about creation. And that's why the Jesuits went into education. And that's why the Bollandists do their research, is to help us understand Jesuits in terms of how we understand creation. But the Bollandists say, here's how some men and women got it right. Right. But that has to be such an edifying work. Just picking up, I've got a number of books on the lives of saints, and just picking those up, reading those, you, you might do it more during Lent or something, it's so edifying. So, Father Michael Maher, I really appreciate your time and your insight into this and, and the amazing work you do with and for the, the Bollandists. So, thank you for sharing that with us. Well, thank you. And I just, I can I take this opportunity to say hello to my dear friend Gary Zagalo in Spokane, Washington, who, Joan, is your biggest fan. Oh, well, hi, and, how are you? <laughs> and uh, you have so many fans in the United States, so I just want to mention one. And thank you for supporting the Bollandists, and for all of you who are listening, you can go onto their webpage and find out more about them. And thank you, you EW10, for all your great work that you do. Well, thank you, and God bless, and I'll be putting a link up to the uh, picture of Father and a link to the Bollander site on my blog when I announce this interview. So thank you and God bless. And thank all of you. For more information on these stories or to check out Joan's blog and to ask her a question, go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com. Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.